Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I'm the founder and editor of AmazingSpiderTalk.com. And I'm mischievous Mark Chinacchio, founder of the Chase and Amazing blog and author of 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for a special episode of the all-new Amazing Spider-Talk. We hope you enjoy this podcast and that it provides an intelligent conversation between two fans and collectors as we look at the Spider-Man comic universe in a bit of a bigger picture. Today, we are going to be doing something a little bit different, Dan. As is our mission, you got to go somewhere and do something extra Spider-Man-y on, of all things, your honeymoon. Now, I know you didn't end up fighting the Puma, but what did you do and what does it have to do with our show today? Well, Mark, uh, in June, my wife and I went on our much-delayed honeymoon and traveled up to Seattle, of all places, where I was able to visit the Museum of Pop Culture, also known locally as the Mopop. To see what is their biggest exhibit ever, the Marvel's Universe of Superheroes. I talked briefly about this exhibit on the show a little while back, but I was so moved by what I saw there, I knew that I had to talk to one of the curators on the show. So that's what I'm doing today. Thankfully, the uh, the museum, I reached out to them because and was really persistent, and they were nice enough to set me up with the co-curator of the event, Brooks Peck, for an exclusive discussion about how it was all assembled, the ideas behind it, etc., etc. And we also talked about how they got to display what I thought was the coolest part of their collection, Amazing Fantasy 15. That's the original artwork, right? Yes, the original artwork, I meant to say. Yeah, they had the page where Spider-Man is created, the first appearance of Spider-Man. So it was really awesome. That's amazing. I mean, Dan, I'm still super jealous that you got to go out and see that. Um, I mean... I've never even been to Seattle, so um, you know that's another point of jealousy. But we can talk about that later. <laughs> you know, but seriously, like the, it, it, you, you just nonstop raved about this um, exhibit when you when you came back um, a few months ago, and uh, I'm just really glad that you got to follow up on this a bit more and, and enlighten our listeners about the experience that they can get when they go out there. Well, there's a good chance that uh, someone like you, Mark, might be able to see this exhibit. We're going to get into that in. The discussion. So even if you aren't able to go to Seattle, there's still a chance for you to see this thing. So listen in and they'll give you more information about where you might be able to see it. But remember, this episode and not my honeymoon, I swear, <laughs> on, on all things Spider-Man, all of this wouldn't be possible without the support of our wonderful Patreon subscribers whose patronage allows us to assemble the guests we have on the show and do all of our research. And to that point, if you enjoy the show and want to help us continue while getting the amazing bonus content that we do, like reviews when they were originally released to our Patreon subscribers and additional episodes that we never release publicly, go check out the show notes to this episode and go over to the Patreon page and consider joining our team. 
We've got a bunch of new options actually this week that I'll talk about at the end of the show, but I hope you guys all give it a chance and check out that Patreon page, even if it's just to give it a look. Yeah, well, this this sounds awesome, Dan, and I, I think we got to just get right to it. Uh, so let's hear from Mopop curator Brooks Peck. Well, now let's meet one of our amazing spider friends, the kind of guy I go to other friends who recommend. Find out about the things they created. But you're just friends, they're an amazing friend, a friend, a friend, a friend, they're an amazing friend. Well, welcome back, everybody. I'm here uh, today again with, as I said before, Brooks Peck, the co-curator of uh, the Marvel uh, exhibit at the Museum of Pop Culture in Seattle. Thank you for joining us today, Brooks. Oh, very, very happy to. So, um, Brooks, can you tell us, you know, before we kind of get into this, you know, let's say helicopter, you know, view of this whole thing, what is the Museum of Pop Culture? And I guess, what is your role with the museum? Oh, wow. Well, the Museum of Pop Culture, we go by Mopop. Uh, We've been around for 18 years now. We started as something called the Experience Music Project back in 2000. And initially, the museum was solely devoted to popular music and rock and roll in particular. I joined around 2004, right when we started to add, I was like the first hired professional nerd. We started to add other forms of pop culture. We started to look at TV and film and and we were constantly sort of broadening our scope of what we were, we were talking about until eventually we got to a point where we were doing fashion shows and we brought in a Hello Kitty show and we decided, you know, time has come for us to change our name to update to better reflect who we are. So we became the Museum of Pop Culture, and that's definitely definitely who we are. And we're in downtown Seattle, right at the foot of the Space Needle. And me, I'm a curator there. So a curator is sort of like a writer-director on a film. Yeah, creating an exhibition is an enormous collaborative project, and the curator is the person who kind of is telling the story and, and wrangling everyone to help tell that story, if that makes sense. Absolutely. So um, the reason uh, I wanted to have you on the show today is that you know I, I had the fortunate experience to travel to Seattle this summer with uh, my wife on my honeymoon, and she was patient enough to humor me by going to Mopop with me, um, which turned out to be a wonderful experience for both of us because I wanted to attend the Marvel Universe of Superheroes exhibit, which you co-created. And I have to say, I was absolutely blown away by what was assembled. So I wanted to have you on because I don't think I've ever been so affected by a collection and its curation than how this uh, exhibit affected me. So I guess before we get into the specifics of it, I kind of wanted to talk about it for those who aren't as fortunate as myself or yourself to have experienced this, uh, you know, what you've curated. Um, Can you describe what the collection is or what the, the exhibit is? Sure. Marvel Universe of Superheroes is a 10,000-square-foot exhibition. It's actually the largest exhibition we've ever done. And it looks at the entire history of Marvel. Sort of a, we really like to explore the, the kind of rise and fall, rise and fall cycle that, that Marvel has been through as a company. And we, of course, begin with the, with the comics era, tell the story of... of how the comics were, were started in Marvel and how they evolved and changed and things like that. And then, of course, when the MCU kicks in, we, we talk about the films and, and really try to look at 
the interplay between the comics and the films. I, I would like to think if we're really deep into the comics, it's going to be quite satisfying. We have, for example, 65 pieces of original art on display at any given time. If you're into the movies, we've got dozens of costumes from the films and props and, and nifty things. And, and we, try and, we try and make those connections, show how they work together. Well, that's really great you say that because, like, it was exactly the experience of my wife and I. She's, you know, she knows Marvel through the movies, and I know through, like, a, an exhaustive history of reading comics, and we both found, kind of found ways to connect. She connected with the Iron Man video game VR experience, you know, and meanwhile, I'm on the other side of the room, like, dorking out over some Jim Steranko cover. So on our show, um, over the years, we've kind of been exhaustively documenting the history of the Spider-Man character, and part of, like, you know, you kind of dream up fantasies of, like, what would be the ultimate thing to, like, see and do in in regards to Spider-Man in the world. And so I've always dreamed of visiting the Library of Congress, where the original Ditko pages from Amazing Fantasy 15 were anonymously donated, after having kind of thought to have been lost for a long time. Yeah. Um, but there I was at your exhibit, and I turned the corner and saw, you know, that you had not just any of the pages, but the page where Peter Parker creates the Spider-Man persona. And mm-hmm. I have to admit that, like this moment, like I, I wouldn't have said this going in, but it brought me to tears in a way that I found totally surprising. Um, I guess I'm curious. Can you speak to how you managed to get this to be part of this exhibit? I mean, I got to imagine that there was incredible difficulties in getting this kind of loan from Library of Congress, not to mention getting it to the location. Yeah, I mean, it's it's complicated, you know. But the great thing about, of course, the Library of Congress is it's a public service, right? We all own that art in a sense now, if we're American citizens. You and I both own that. So, so, so they have a mandate to to share this work. Doesn't mean though that it, and their other mandate is to take really good care of this work because it is literally a national treasure at this point. So when, and, 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 oh my gosh, paper, you know, old paper is so fragile and you really want to limit how much light it gets exposed to how, what the temperature is. You want to like preserve it because that's another of the library of Congress's mandates is, is to preserve and protect the stuff for, for a long time. Um, we had to negotiate a lot about what page was available because certain pages had already been on view recently, and if something's been on view recently, they want to keep it in the vault. Uh, what we call in the museum field, they want to give it a rest. So, it, so other pages are resting. But that page is available, and they agreed that we could display it for six months. So I'm going to kind of break the hearts of your listeners. Today, today, literally today, we took the piece down oh, wow. and back to the Library of Congress. And then what that entails is it's like it's like a movie, you know. Um, they send us a, a specialized uh, collections care person who comes out. Only they can handle the object. It gets deinstalled. Uh, I don't think they literally handcuff it to their wrist, but I I, I feel like it's kind of like that, you know. Uh, and then they hand carry it back to back to DC, back to wherever it's stored. Good news is now we were swapping in uh, a really great. I think it's a Ramita page from, um, so you'll have to help me out because you're the super expert. Did Ramita do the Green Goblin reveal? Yes, uh, issue 39. 39, yeah. So, we have, so we're replacing the, the Amazing Fantasy 15 page with an issue 39 page. It's actually the one where the Green Goblin is revealed for the first time to be. Oh. Yeah, so, so that's super fun. Um, not, not a bad 
secondary thing to have <laughs> in there. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the great thing about that, that amazing fantasy 15 page, as you say, you know, it's the page where we see Peter, you know, putting together his web shooters and we see him trying on, you know, putting together his, his costume. And so, and so there's that one panel, that first panel where he's wearing the costume and, uh, ben Saunders, the chief curator of the exhibition, made this point. He's like, for a brief moment in time, that was the only drawing of Spider-Man that ever existed, that one panel. And then, of course, a moment later, Ditko drew the next panel and the next panel. And and since then, probably literally a thousand artists have worked on Spider-Man in one way or another. But for, And it's, it's a phenomenon. It's a giant phenomenon. But for a moment, just a moment, there was just one drawing of Spider-Man in the entire world. All that existed of him prior to that was a shadow behind Peter Parker cast on the wall. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, is, there, is there a cost associated with that or is it or is it like literally free for you to rent but you have to cover the transportation or or whatever it is? It's it's the second case. Yeah, there's no there's no uh, direct fee, but we do have to cover costs. Uh, we have the travel costs and the courier paying the courier and things like that. And I have no idea if I should be talking about this or not, but who cares? Uh, you know, that's on the order of between 15 and 20 grand, which, but depending. Um, it's, it's, it's a little intense, but it was worth it. I mean, we had it for six months. Yeah, I'm surprised you're not advertising. You weren't advertising it even harder. I mean, if, if I had known that was there, I would have you know, booked my week solid, I think. Oh, yeah. Trust me, I pushed, I pushed our team. I tried, you know... We cover a lot of things, and and, um, and I, I definitely spent a lot of time sort of grabbing marketing people and being like, listen to me, this is important. But <laughs> that's That sounds like me and my friends and family, where I'm like, these comics are important. <laughs> right. <laughs> Convincing them is a whole other thing. Right. Um, so on that uh, note, one of the things I liked the most about the collection was the reverence for the history of the comics. We did – an episode uh, of our show on Frederick Wortham, the guy, uh, you know, involved with the Comics Code Authority. Yeah. And then a few days later, I went up to Seattle and saw your show, and there was Frederick Wortham front and center at the exhibit right when you walk in. You know, and I could see a very different version of this exhibit that focused on, like, the Marvel Cinematic Universe and things associated with that that you, you can kind of see almost anywhere. You go to Disneyland, you would see an exhibit sure. like that. But this was so detailed and comics oriented. Can you speak to the exhibit's reverence for history and and you know and and how that was kind of uh, you know arrived at? I guess like how much you would focus on that. And and do you have a favorite part or item of the exhibit in that regard? In in regards to comics history. Sure, sure. I mean, we felt it was uh, really important to lay that groundwork to talk to. I mean, okay, when we do an exhibition, any kind of exhibition, we're talking to. Broadly speaking, this kind of generalization, two audiences, you and your wife, right? <laughs> Based on how you've described yourselves to me. Um, people who are really into the topic that we're talking about and people who, you know, know a little or, or are coming with someone. And we're always working to make sure we're basically firing on both cylinders. So that we're engaging the, the casual, the browsers, but we're also satisfying the deep divers, the experts, the real, the real aficionados. So doing something like talking about like literally the origin of the American comic book satisfies both those things. The aficionado can see, oh yeah, they're paying attention to like the deep roots of my hobby, my passion. But honestly, you know, a lot of people are going to walk in that door and be like, 
I didn't know where comic books came from. So we talk about how they, they emerge from sort of the pulp magazines and the Sunday funnies phenomenon to answer your other question. Actually, one of my very favorite pieces is we have a, on display a piece of original Alex Raymond flash Gordon artwork from, from the flash Gordon Sunday strip. And I mean, it's, it's beautiful. His line work is amazing. And he had to draw really big because they newspapers were in this big format at the time. So it's, just, it's, it's a big piece of art and there's flash and, you know, Ming the merciless and all those people. It's really sweet. And you also have like original production art from Marvel comics magazine. Number one. Am I correct? We do. We do. We have what might be the only surviving page of original art from, from yeah. Marvel comics. Number one. And it's the last page of the, of the Namor story. It's Submariner or Submariner. What do you say? I say Submariner. Okay. So do I. But some people give me the Submariner. I don't know. I don't know. But no, they're wrong. It's like the people that say, like, symbiotes. <laughs> Get out of here. Right. Or biopic when they're trying to say biopic. That drives me crazy. Oh, that but does it, drive me crazy. And, and what's fun about that page, I mean, besides, of course, the history is, you know, the drawing style is really different from, from what we th- think of as more of the comic book style that, that was, even, it was even totally prevalent by, so that was 1939. By the time we're into the early 40s, comics, I think, look like what we think comics look like, to, to speak in a secular way. Whereas in 39, that art is really different, much more thin, much more sparse, not so muscly. One of the things I, I also like, you know, part of Marvel's history, I think that often gets overlooked, you know, I, I think by people also with an agenda to overlook it, is just how politically progressive they were in the pages of their comics, both early on and, and today. I feel like if they saw a barrier to break, they would have their character not just break it, but like blast their way through it. You know, like famously Captain America punching Hitler right in the face before America ever went to battle with Germany. So I, I was pleased, especially in today's comic environment, how much of the exhibit embraced and showcased that legacy. Can you speak to the thought that went into showcasing and kind of featuring uh, that part of Marvel's history? I mean, we definitely wanted to talk about how one of the things that set Marvel apart, especially in the early days, is that that Marvel comics and those superheroes lived in our world, not some other world. They were in New York, not Metropolis, right? And that allowed and enabled Marvel, I think, to therefore respond to or comment on, as you say, current events and current social issues much more directly. And also because comics used to occupy, you know, this interesting place of being commercially very successful at certain times, but still very underground in a sense, kind of niche. Mm -hmm. So a place where you could get away with a more radical statement. You know, later in the 70s, they'd follow up that, that, Hitler punch with a with a cover showing Luke Cage punching a Klansman, you know. Yeah. Again, not 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 shy about that. And and of course there's things like the nine eleven tribute issues and uh, the gay marriage cover and, and all this all this stuff. So that's actually we lead with those issues in the exhibition. We have this newsstand and um, that's where you buy your ticket to the show, but that's also where we're talking about this idea that Marvel is, is it's a fantasy world set in our world, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, and they could be pretty brave. I love the newsstand and I love that you had comics from all different eras kind of on there representing, you know, Marvel new and old and 
all that stuff. And I wasn't going to mention this, but I don't know if this has anything to do with you, but I was so pleased I went down to the uh, gift store and it was just chock full of like amazing Spider-Man comics. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just like perfectly great condition comics. In fact, I bought the honeymoon issue on my honeymoon wow. in your store. So there you go. There's a little bit of kismet. Nice. So the talking about the beginning of the exhibit, you know, it starts out as a sort of history of the company and characters diving deep into a roster of creators that made up early Marvel and and Given that credit for who created what in Marvel is so controversial, mm-hmm. what were discussions like regarding how to credit the various creators and how much time to spend on, say, Stan Lee versus Jack Kirby? Like, was there a discussion about like that kind of controversy and whether or not you bring it up? There was, there was definitely some, and I think really we were more limited by space than by concern about about who we'd be talking about when. Uh, so that we had to, we decided pretty early that we didn't have a ton of room. We wanted to bring the characters forward first, and and still, I mean, definitely the creators are important. There's there's three sections of the exhibit, which we call the studio areas, which talk about creators and the creative process and things like that. But we realized we wouldn't be able to talk about a vast number, and so chose to focus, in particular, in the beginning on. Stanley and Jack Kirby as as these sort of these towering figures, yet doing our best. I mean, see, you can hear me tap dancing, and as as I describe this, you know, I I, I don't want to be perpetuating that idea that it was like these two guys and nobody else, because of course that's baloney. There were a lot of people involved, and so we we feature them. But if you dive deeper into the side panels, into the touch tables, into things like that, we definitely get into some of the other creators. I mean, of course, you could do you could do so much about about Marvel creators over the years. One of the nice, great things about doing the show is we had a lot of good advisors and editors and helpers. Among them, Anne Nascenti, who was a writer and editor. Oh, wonderful! Also, uh, Danny Fingeroff. So um, he's a friend of ours. Yeah. Right on, right on. So, so that was great. Working with them was great, and. And they, they gave us a lot of guidance in, in that area, for sure. Well, excellent. Um, you know, I, I, I really love the kind of – even gave Flo Steinberg her own little shout-out. And um, there's that great piece you have hanging on the wall of the kind of uh, cartoonified drawings of the bullpen. I had a, a good 15 minutes of going through the index and looking at – Every little person and being like, oh, you know, well, uh, you know, there's, you know, uh, Steve Dicko hiding away and David Michelinie running out the door and and all that. I thought that was quite fun. Well, that was a revelation for me. You know, here, here's a case where, where I, something I learned. And as, as an aside, I'll say, you know, that's I think the best thing about my job is I learn a ton about the topic. Like, like I always say, I feel like I confidently understand what I'm talking about the day the exhibit opens. And anyway, we were walking through, and I think it was Danny who who was, you know, pointed to that that funny illustration of the bullpen. He's like, you know, this is, and he, he said something else, but he said, you know, this is not true. There was, there was no big space like this. Everybody worked at home or in different offices and things. This is like a fantasy. This is, this is Marvel and Stan creating this image, always creating this image of who they were and what they were about. I, I love that the, the the kind of myth of the Marvel bullpen. You know, yeah. that was to me that was the appeal of Marvel and the the thing that made Stanley even beyond his writing. Like Stanley created an atmosphere that people wanted to be a part of, whether or not it was real or or t- entirely fake. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. 
So after that kind of history of the company and creators, the exhibit starts to break down, like you said, characters room to room. And you've got some great kind of like life-size recreations of the, the thing. You know, you can sit on the couch with him and there's like characters that swing by in the background and everything. And you've got an upside-down Spider-Man you can choose to kiss if you so like. <laughs> but I wouldn't advise it because um, you don't know who else's lips have been there. Maybe if you get the first thing in the morning. I don't know. Yeah, but. do they clean it overnight? No, yeah, we clean we clean Spider-Man. <laughs> uh, of course, good. I have to admit I had a certain worry that Spider-Man might not have a full room of his own given you know that his licensing is shared between Sony and Marvel. And when you go to these kind of things, it's typically like, well, Marvel hosted this, so they want to push forward their own particular characters. Because I think as a character, he's one of the mid in the middle of the range of characters that we see in the exhibit. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I yeah. was like, oh, no, I really hope there's a Spider-Man thing here. And so I was more than pleased when I kind of came across his space. I, I was really – I mean, you guys really pulled out the stops for him like we've been talking about. Um, I guess for people who might be interested in going or want the ability to go, can you describe some of the items that might, that are contained in that exhibit? Uh, in the Spidey section? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I – we led with the Library of Congress piece that we talked about a little bit ago. Uh, now we're leading with with the um, the Green Goblin, the number, the issue thirty nine page. Gosh, there is there are at least at least ten original art pages up, uh, including four pages from the Death of Gwen Stacy sequence. Um, like I say, the original art. Honestly, that section contains some of my favorite objects in the whole show. We have a costume from uh, Homecoming, and it's not his his Tony Stark Spidey outfit. It's his homemade cut-up hoodie, Sharpie-markered Spider-Man Spidey suit. And I I just feel like that piece is so emblematic of, of the character and the story, of that particular story. And it looks so... I mean, I, for me, for me personally... I prefer the Spider-Man who is more the troubled teenager, like like really not not a superhero kind of person, you know. And and I think that costume helps tell that story. You lean more towards Ditko than Sabermita. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And then one of the things that that I really pushed for was we have a running loop of the opening credits of the Spider-Man animated show from the '60s. Because that was actually one of the earliest instances of a Marvel comic property breaking out into multimedia in kind of a big way. And, of course, it has that theme song that once you hear it, you never, ever forget. And we found a couple of the animation cells from that show. Same thing, we, we, we don't think there are any more cells surviving at this point. One of them is, is of J. Jonah Jameson, <laughs> grimacing and looking angry, of course. But... Um, we had Ralph Bakshi on our show, and really? yeah, and he described to us that they would, you know, go out and people would say to him, "Do do you want the cells from the show?" And and none of them thought that, you know, obviously they had no idea that this character right. would go on to be, you know, or even that their show would be held in such high regard. It, on our show, he admits he's never watched them since they aired, and had no idea that people had any kind of fondness for them. Which is hard to believe, but, you know, uh, there you go. You get quirky artists, and that's how they are. But he described that they would say, do you want these? And he'd say, no, I don't really want them. And they would burn the cells up in the parking lot. You know, they would just throw them into the garbage. And it's like, oh, my goodness, you have no idea what you're doing. So when I came into your exhibit and saw those on the wall, I was like, wow. You know, I didn't think anybody could actually dig this stuff up. Yeah. Um, so also in that section, we have... Um 
We have a great green goblin mask from a film and a pumpkin bomb. We have a, a besides the Gwen Stacy art and the and the issue thirty nine art, about five other pieces trying to show the sort of spectrum of Spider Man art through the ages. So so there's a McFarlane piece, for example, um, and a few others. And as you mentioned, the the, the life size Spider Man statue. All the all the big statues were made by Gentle Giant. Actually, they they make the collectibles, um, and they then they can scale up. Uh, what the statues that they do. So, and okay, here's an Easter egg. Uh, we wanted Spider-Man's hanging by, you know, he's got some, some webbing up there and we actually wanted it to look like McFarland style webbing. So we ended up using um, plastic bags kind of tied up and torn a bit to, to create. It was very effective. I must say that I want to have that frayed look. So the spaghetti webbing is what it oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well, very cool. I, you know, I want to talk a little bit about those Gwen Stacy death, images you know the artwork is stunning and one of the things that i liked about it is you know we've talked to jerry conway on our show a number of times about Mm. writing that scene and about the particularly about the snap of her neck and how it was a sound effect that was kind of added in last minute and one of the things interesting about looking at the art pages like in person was that you could see that like they had like redone some things in terms of i think like the dialogue or the sound effects and you could see faint outlines of things that you know, pre-existed what the final page was, and uh, it, it's kind of like a like a a weird glimpse through history of at like what could have been in, in a sort of way. Yeah, and it, it reveals that development process for for comics back when most comics were analog. You know, I, I when I take people through, I will I will wow kids by showing them places where things have been cut out and pasted back on, thus showing the origin of cut and paste. You know, so more about like how this kind of thing gets pulled together walking through the exhibit you know you can't help but notice some of the reoccurring names of donors who lent some of the most incredible pieces to the collection like say eric roberts but i'm sure you can't go into great detail on who these people are but i'm curious are these mostly from personal collections or are these names like sometimes representatives of other like archival groups i'm curious like what kind of agreement has to be made to get the piece to Seattle, no. like, a, like a private collection. And like, how do you find these things? Is there a, a database on who owns what? I mean, you can probably see behind me that listeners can't. I have some original pages from comics hanging on the wall behind me, but right. nobody knows that I own those. You know, right. how do you find this stuff? So except for the Library of Congress piece, every piece of original art in the show comes from a private collector. And not not other institutions. There are a few institutions that are starting to collect Marvel, but but not much. Just about everything out there I've I've found is in private hands. And this is a lot of what you do as a, as a museum curator. There's a lot of networking. There's a lot of just getting to know people. Once you know one person and learn about their collection, and and basically when they start to trust you, they might introduce you to someone else, and then then you're kind of you've got a bit of an in. You know, so, I mean, I don't want to over glamorize it. Right. But there's a small amount of, of, you know, I travel here, I travel there, I meet someone, we have lunch, we chat. The secret is, is they, you know, collectors really want to show you their stuff. They really do. They, they, they will seem reluctant, but when it gets down to it, you're going to be sitting in their den and you're going to start, you're going to be flipping through their pages and you're going to be like odd and 
and and you just have a good time together and and look at this cool stuff and then i mean not everyone wants to lend um to a show but again once they feel comfortable with you and once they really understand i mean we 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 absolutely pride ourselves at mopop that we we adhere to the highest best practices of uh, what we call stewardship taking care of stuff you know we use to transport the comic art we use special art handlers the same people you would hire to move a uh, i don't know an impressionist painting from one museum to another or across the across the globe um it's all white glove service everything's highly insured um there's always like two people with the object at all times so someone can you know go to the bathroom or whatever and once they feel safe then then yeah i think a lot of them are then pretty excited that other people are going to get to take in this stuff that gives them so much joy and and so much pleasure uh and now what we're experiencing this is always happens with exhibitions is the first round is hard so so part of that that stewardship is we're not going to display this stuff for years and years because we don't want to expose it to that much light and that much that much temperature change so we need more art for the future we need to keep getting in touch with collectors keep finding new sources of things and now that the show is up that's totally started to happen other people read about it and they contact us and say like oh hey i saw you you know had this thing and i've got this thing and maybe you'd like to check it out so it's it's this ongoing ongoing process in lenders don't there's there's no fee given to them i mean they do it purely out of the goodness of their heart and i can't thank them enough i could not obviously could not literally do this without lenders and and they're great people it's interesting that you mentioned uh impressionist like paintings because you know it's the same thing with like paintings right like you could own like a, a monet you know but it, that's a huge part of our cultural heritage that just some good person owns right yeah. And, yeah and it's held in supervision of something so vital to culture and society you know and i would say now i I don't know that i like saying like a page of amazing spider-man is the same as a monet but like in a way it is it is equally part of our cultural heritage in someone's hands it terrifies me a bit but i i'm thankful that amazing fantasy 15 is in the library of congress you know but uh you know just just seeing that all these amazing pages that i've loved you know exist you know uh, like only in the hands of a private person is I don't know whether that's like more safe or not, but uh, it definitely opened my eyes up to like how much of this history of this medium is kind of just scattered all over the place. Yeah, or as you were talking about before with the cells from the animated series, you know, um, destroyed. So much was destroyed, but you know, let's not let's not focus on on the loss, right? I think that there's more awareness now of of. I mean, it's a double-edged sword, but in terms of like you know, because lately the collecting market for comic art has kind of blown up. And prices have really increased, and, and it's it's pulling that hobby out of the reach of, of some people with only perhaps modest means. But on the other side, it does mean that people are recognizing when things get a high financial value, they, they see that it kind of also gives it a, more of a cultural value. And yes, people take better care of it and things like that. One of the more curious parts of your exhibit, as listeners to our, of our show know about, is the kind of Ben Cooper Spider-Man costume and the the Mary Marvel Marching Society fan yeah. stuff that you have there. Yeah. I'm wondering if you could speak to the inclusion of kind of the fan items and also if you have a, a personal favorite item in the exhibit that you might otherwise go on uh, overlooked. I, I honestly, I wish we could have done more with that, that aspect of the story of, of 
of Marvel fan items and and how and what an interesting and loony loony job Marvel did of interacting over the years. I mean, it's it's there's this playfulness. I mean, it's in you'll find it in the comics, of course, but but this incredible playfulness. So you know, the sleeve for the record of the of the the theme song, you know, from the from the Merry Marching Society or whatever it's called, like the, the, it says, "Scream along with Marvel," and and it was like like it could be a little playful in the comics, but then in the in the fanzines on the, the fooms and stuff, they just 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 went out of control. Everything there except for the Ben Cooper costume actually came from one person, and he's one of our staff members, a guy named Neil, who is a a, a deep and lifelong lover of Marvel and. Neil, in fact, has achieved all the levels of Marvel fandom. You know, there are like six levels or something. Now I'm getting out of the things I know very well. Is this is this like some kind of like uh, like AA method? <laughs> you know, you're you're they they have these like they used to have, I guess, these sort of stratified levels of your Marvel fandom, and the top level can only be bestowed in, by Stan Lee himself, which which happened to to this guy Neil. <laughs> so 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 yeah, it's got all the the. I mean, this, one of the things that's so interesting, I mean, it's hard for us to remember now, but one of the things the old fanzines did was they just simply published pictures of the artists and the editors and the writers because there was no internet. You had no idea what these people looked like. So this is something of great interest to the fans, just photos of them um, sitting at their desks or whatever. And it, it, I don't know if it demystifies it, but it certainly humanizes the whole process when you see these folks. And um, even then, they, they used it to build up fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Yes, for sure. For sure. I always, I'm always like, really? Did, did you as an artist sit there in a tie every day? I don't know if I'm buying that, but maybe, maybe. Getting back to your other question about, about my favorite thing, that's always super tough for me. On the art side, there's a great cover of Captain America fighting Black Panther, uh, which I really like. In part because of, as I was mentioning before, it's really heavily worked over. It's It's got a lot of corrections, a lot of changes, a lot of layers, literally all these layers. So it's, it's neat to see as a document, and also it's just beautiful art. On the film side, I'm a big Guardians guy, and, and the fact I really pushed for, and, and, and thankfully they loaned us uh, the Walkman from the first Guardians of the Galaxy, and I, I, that, so that like is the thing that makes me choke up a little because like, that's like the heart of the film and that's heart of Pe- the heart of Peter Quill there, right there. You know, um, I love that piece. The exhibit itself is a comic lover's dream. Like, as we've been talking about, it's like essentially a museum gallery of the best artwork that Marvel has to offer in, in, in a very large way. But it also, like you said, is a ton for movie fans. One of the things I thought was the most amazing was the design work that went into displaying the props and costumes, like the mirrored hallway that makes you feel like you're in a Doctor Strange movie. Uh, can you talk about the design of the physical space of the exhibit and what, are, what some of your favorite touches are? Yeah, so the exhibition was designed by a company called Studio TK. They're based in Germany. Super talented. And also, there was a lot of sort of conversation and, and, and talking about, like, like what kind of immersive... We, we really like to create immersive settings in our exhibitions. Just kind of put you in the place. So that's why there are a number of spots uh, in the exhibition that look sort of like New York streets or New York buildings. And, and when there's a window from one part of the gallery to another, it's, it's, it's like a window from a, from a building, not just kind of an indoor window. 
it's a traveling exhibition. It's actually going to go on the road to uh, a few spots in North America, and then it'll probably head over to Europe. So that really comes into consideration. It means you can't you can't go as all out on immersive design as you might like because it all needs to be packed up and and, and put onto trucks and things like that. So you mentioned the mirrored. Doctor Strange area. I really love that area. We had a little trouble where uh, people's guide dogs refused to walk through it because it was so visually confusing for them. So we found carpeting for the guide dogs. And this is, again, this is just one of those things where, where I just, I look up and I was like, huh. So today at my job, I had to um, shop for a carpet for a guide dog. Cool. I like, so I, so I actually grew up in New York City and uh, the lower level of the exhibition we um, internally we talk we call it as being about like what we call the street level heroes. So it's Luke Cage and it's Jessica Jones and it's Daredevil and Ghost Rider and folks like that. Folks who are not necessarily fighting aliens in other galaxies, you know. Even a life size Miss Marvel. Yeah, yeah, and we have a, an, an awesome life size Miss Marvel. So that area get, kind of gets tricked up like a like a slightly slightly dangerous uh, New York city street and there's lampposts and there's drain pipes and, and, and there's this one little corny turn and you actually have to, you have to um, look back to catch it. But we have in a window, like a shop window, a Luke Cage hoodie from the TV show, all, all bullet ridden. I like that area. Yeah. Well, I could go on and on all day about the exhibit, but I think the listeners will have to go for themselves to really take in everything that it has to offer. So I guess my my last question about the show is, um, what has been your experience with attendees in the exhibit? And have you had creators from Marvel give feedback on what it's like to be amongst such an excellent showcase of not only their work, but the whole company's work in history? Oh, you know, I haven't haven't heard from any creators, actually. I mean, we worked with a few, but... In terms of, of visitors overall, I mean, you know, Marvel, it's a powerhouse brand, no question, especially right now. So, and we were lucky enough to pull this together. So, you know, we opened before uh, the new Avengers film opened up uh, this past summer. So that was great for us. And and to just to talk about raw numbers and things, it's been a real, a real record attendance year for us. But for me, I mean, I love that. Keeps me, you know, keep, pays my salary, but... It's of course about seeing those reactions. So, so, so it's interesting. One of my best experiences did happen in the in the Spidey room. I was there looking after something, and I saw this kid come in. He was a little boy. He was like six, and he turned the corner, and he saw the big Spider-Man statue hanging off the wall, and he he literally gasped. He just his mouth dropped open, and he gasped. And I was like, oh heck yeah, that's that's what this is about. That's awesome. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the show today. Um, this is the part where you get to kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, tell the listeners where they can follow your work on the internet and how they can see your work at the Mopop and maybe some other places they can check out this particular exhibit. Sure. So, so the exhibition will be at Mopop in Seattle through February of 2019. And then it'll be heading to the East Coast. And I can't, it's not announced yet, so I can't say where, but just keep your eye out for that. So, so like I say, folks far and wide should have a good, will have a shot at, at seeing the show. As for me, it, what I do is at the museum. Come on, come on out to the museum and, and you'll see what I do. Perfect. Thanks again for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you.
Well, Mark, I really wish we could have gone to the exhibit together and really nerd out over all the things that were there, including that new Ramita page, which is really exciting. I mean, I'm glad I got to see Amazing Fantasy, but now I feel like I got to go back. So Honeymoon Part 2, just to see... (laughs) the new Ramita page. So thanks again to Brooks Peck for coming on the show and be sure to visit the exhibit in Seattle or keep your eyes and ears open for when it comes your way. Mark, I think there's probably a more than good chance that it could land in New York City. Well, then count me in, Dan, and maybe you won't be invited to this. Like, I wasn't invited on your honeymoon, okay? (laughs) (laughs) That seems fair, I guess. I don't know. Seems a little little petty, but I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is petty as our argument over the annuals. There you Uh, go. Also, thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers uh, who made this show possible. Please be sure to check out our Patreon page and your podcast feed this week where we're going to have a review of Amazing Spider-Man number 8. We've got a review of the Venom film live now. And Mark, you've got a special story to tell this week that's already up on our Patreon. Yeah, um, you know, for all those people who uh, have not gotten into the Patreon groove yet, I mean, if you want to hear a little minutia about my childhood comic book collection and the fact that I got reunited with the child, my childhood copy of Amazing Spider-Man number 300. So we're talking about the comic that I originally bought in 1988 off the spinner rack for $1.50 that I thought I had lost forever and had to replace when I was completing my run of Amazing Spider-Man, Dan. It mysteriously showed up again, and there's a story behind it, and you can find out through our Patreon feed. It's pretty incredible, Mark, this story. Uh, And I think our conversation was funny and interesting and one of the best things we've done on the show, especially in the Patreon feed. So I hope people come and check that out. I loved hearing all the details about it. So again, just remember everyone at home or wherever you are, There's no better place to join on the Patreon bandwagon than join us for our exciting coverage of this new run and all the other things we talk about. Why wait to get caught up in a few months? Go hop on that site and check out all the things we happen. And I mentioned at the top of the show that there's a new thing for all of our subscribers. We created two new tiers on our Patreon. There's the new $1 a month no prize category where uh, you'll get invited to our Patreon-exclusive Slack feed, so if you don't think you can afford three ninety nine a month, the price of a new comic, you can just give us a buck. It'll help us out, and you'll get access to some private conversations that we have with only our patrons. And you can kind of sample what's going on and get an idea of whether or not you really want to upgrade. But we've also got an even more exciting thing. We've got a $20 a month new Web Warriors tier where you're going to get all the commission prints that we normally give to our Excelsior Club, but they're going to be inked and colored as well. You'll just get them a few months later than you would normally. But so you'll get both the black and white and the colored versions. And I've got industry professionals already slaving away on those colored commissions. And if you join this week, I will throw in, with the Alex Saviak print that's going out this week, uh, a colored version of the Ron Friends one we've already done. And it's only available if you sign up this week. Otherwise, the offer expires. So get that awesome Ron Friends print we did in full color. Um, So that's our new Web Warriors tier. Check it out on Patreon. That's amazing, Dan. Um, Also, check out... The, our uh, brother podcast, Untold Talks of Spider-Man, where they have been discussing the events of Spider-Geddon. 
Plus, we've also got the amazing Spider Slack community, which you just alluded to, uh, that you can join. Just check out this episode's description for a link to join that talking community. Now, Dan, uh, besides uh, on our great podcast, where else can we find you espousing the wonderful words of Spider-Man and other things? Yeah, I'm going to be in a bunch of places this week. I am making an appearance on another podcast called Battle for the Atom. It's an X-Men podcast, and they invited me on to talk about a bunch of random Spider-Man stories. Um, (laughs) We're actually going to be talking about Spider-Man and Wolverine. Oh. And Spider-Man and the X-Men, and that great, I think it's Amazing Spider-Man 92, where he meets up with Iceman for the first time. Cool. So a bunch of fun Spider-Man comics, so go check out that podcast. That's Battle for the Atom. And uh, I'm also going to be appearing on Chris Baker, who did that Amazing Spider-Man PS4 review. We did a Spider-Man Easter Egg Jeopardy this morning, uh, and I won't say who won, but it was a lot of fun, and there were a lot of great Easter eggs on that show. So keep an eye out on his channel, and you can go there. It's superhero.vg. We'll take you to his YouTube channel, and you can watch for that awesome video with a bunch of other like YouTube so, like Spider-Man people. And then you can also follow me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk, where I'm talking about Spider-Man all the live long day, uh, as much as I can get away from my work to play around with Twitter. How about you, Mark? Man, Dan, I hope you did the, the Spider Talk podcast proud on that show. That's all I can say. <laughs> you won't be disappointed. All right. How about that? All right. Well, I'll see what you get right and get wrong, and we'll, we'll discuss who's disappointed. All right. All okay? right. That's fair. That's fair. As for me, Dan, I mean, I I am far less visible than you are these days, but that's okay. You can, of course, find me on Twitter at ChasingASMblog, and then you can always get my book, 100 Things Spider-Man Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. And, of course, you can go back to uh, my origin story, ChasingAmazingBlog.com, uh, where that where I also have a post-up about that amazing Spider-Man number 300 issue. So, um, yes, it's on our Patreon feed, but if you want to read it in just pure written form – uh, without any of the emotion of Dan just being agog about it, you can read it on ChasingAmazingBlog.com. My agogness is worth paying for. Exactly. I, I agree. <laughs> well, Mark, we don't have to go all the way back 30 years ago to remember our favorite creed out of the pages of Spider-Man comics. Do you want to tell everybody what that creed is that we reassess every two weeks? Absolutely, Dan. Of course, that creed is, with great podcasts must also come the all-new Amazing Spider Talk. <laughs> 